This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This week, I'm joined by Jamila Rakhib. Jamila is a former Nobel Peace Prize nominee and director of the Albert Einstein Institution, which promotes nonviolent action around the world. Violence creates many more social problems than it solves. Nonviolent struggle works by destroying an opponent, not physically, but by identifying the institutions that an opponent needs to survive and then denying them those sources of power. If a nonviolent approach is not capable of doing it, we might as well kiss each other goodbye. Because there's no question that a violent approach won't work. And I accept because of my, I guess, my faith and my religious background, that is a spark of divinity in every human being. And you should respect that. And you don't have a right to destroy. I'm Jimmy Larapid. And I develop tools that help people see their own political power and then use that power effectively. Sorry, not sorry. Jamila, I first heard you when my friend Baratundi Thurston curated a collection of TED Talks and yours was highlighted. And you said something there that changed so instantly how I think about nonviolent action, that it works by destroying an opponent. Can you start by telling us what nonviolent action is and what you meant by this? Yeah, sure. So nonviolent action is actually a way to conduct conflict powerfully and effectively, but without violence. So it's basically a way of acting in which people have used social, political, and economic, essentially weapons, in order to fight for causes that they care about and that they think are uh, of fundamental importance on which perhaps the system is unresponsive or on which existing means of action are not likely to be effective. So nonviolent action at the root of it is an understanding of power. So in the TED Talk and in general, when we speak about this work and we talk about the importance of understanding the role of power in this type of struggle. It's really about understanding where does power reside in society? And I think classically, we tend to think of power being in the hands of power holders, leaders, elected officials, and that the capacity to basically apply violence, for example, is the main source of power that exists in this world. This is a technique of combat. It is a substitute for war and other violence. 
But in fact, there's another type of power, and that's the power that resides in citizens of all kinds, people that are both outside of government and in government that provide various types of obedience, cooperation, and assistance for systems to function. And so the idea is if we can identify these types of power, we can figure out also collectively how we can undermine them. And if we figure that out, how to undermine, how to sever, how to control the access that opponents have to that power, then we can really undermine those opponents, undermine their very survival. And in doing that, really empower ordinary people. So that's what I meant by destroying your opponent, which, you know, always gets people's attention because it doesn't fit with how we normally think about nonviolence as a kind of rejection of violence or peace and love type of thing. Right. I also love that in your TED Talk, you talk about how nonviolent resistance and action are different from street protests like the Women's March. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think that this is something that we struggle with globally is this kind of equating of nonviolent action in terms of the whole technique, in terms of the whole kind of system of action with just simply street protests. Mm. And I think that the kind of first sort of action that people go to, if we're dissatisfied, if we don't agree with a particular policy, if we want to make a particular change, that we're going to go in the street, hold a sign and talk about what we don't agree with, talk about what we want changed. This idea that expressing dissatisfaction somehow magically leads to social and political change is, I think, a barrier we really need to get past. Because what we do know is that's hardly how change actually happens. That street demonstrations and protests are actually on the weaker side of the spectrum of the kind of repertoire of action available to people. And so historically, when people have actually shaken the system and forced change, actually coerced, it hasn't been in expressing dissatisfaction and it hasn't been in protesting policies. It's actually been in withdrawing their cooperation creation of new institutions, like creation of new power, really wielding power and denying it. And that doesn't happen necessarily with going in the streets. So you may have heard that we have this list of 198 methods that my mentor, Gene Sharp, drew up, and it took him decades to do that. The Albert Einstein Institution developed 198 methods of nonviolent action. Some of these can be done individually or in groups at the community level. Others can be done at various different levels of influence and some were geared specifically to government action, even on the international level. He was looking at historically, what are the specific actions people have taken beyond street protests? And he found that actually there's multitudes of them, and that it's helpful to catalog them, to look at how they've been used, in what circumstances did they work, and when did they work less well, and also to look at them in terms of their categories. So what are the symbolic methods? What are the methods of non-cooperation, economic boycotts, like strikes, like political non-cooperation? And then what are the methods of nonviolent intervention, which is really the creation of new institutions? So he cataloged these methods to show there's this diversity of things you can do, and also that some methods are stronger and more powerful than others. Well, I think most of us associate this with Gandhi and Martin Luther King, but that's not really the whole story, is it? Can you give us a brief historical overview of nonviolent action? 
So that would take all day or many days because just the highlights, right? Yeah, I think you're right that most people associate this type of action with Gandhi and King, but actually, there's centuries of the use of this type of conflict because essentially, it's any time people have recognized that the existing system needs to change, that the normal means of doing that are not adequate. And that there's something else that they need to do. People have employed these other kinds of methods. And what Gene Sharp, part of what he did was really look at that history and draw from those centuries of cases. He found that the history of this type of technique actually goes back to perhaps ancient Egypt, ancient Rome. There's something called a plebeian withdrawal from Rome where like the workers of Rome basically left town, settled on a hill, sent a message to the rulers of Rome and said, let's see how well you do functioning in your society without us. And they did that for social and political rights. And it was a massive show of power. And it was perhaps one of the earlier general strikes. And you saw this actually in, as I said, ancient Egypt, where people that were responsible for the construction of some of the pyramids basically stopped working while they were not getting paid and said, until we get our allowance of grain, we're not coming into work. So we are drawing from these types of actions, not necessarily maximalist massive struggles that produced huge revolutions. There's a lot we can learn from these cases. And so obviously, besides that, there's this type of action has been used in every country in the world and throughout history. And so we see it used to save Jews during World War II. We see it in Eastern Europe, in Czechoslovakia. You see it obviously in the civil rights movement, but also in the labor movement and the women's rights movement and the suffrage movement and on and on. And more recently, like if you look at the news this week, you You have massive protests going on in Russia. You have essentially a struggle that's been taking place since July in Belarus against the dictator there. You have also a what's being considered perhaps the biggest protest in world history going on in India with farmers who are protesting against new legislation that they think is extremely unfair and that's going to harm their livelihood. So it's both historical and contemporary cases that there's this massive number of examples that we can draw from, not just to get excited and inspired, but also to learn from them. I'm trying to think if there have been comparable successes from violent resistance, but I don't think that there have been. You mean... Through war and violence and terrorism and violent means. It's interesting that you say that because I think globally we almost have this religious belief in violence as the most powerful thing you can do, not just for bad causes, but also ones we agree with. We constantly justify its use and support its use. Even if we condemn violence, we still say somehow it's necessary for these that that we care about. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement could not have halted Hitler's armies. Negotiations cannot convince Al-Qaeda's leaders to lay down their arms. To say that force may sometimes be necessary is not a call to cynicism, it is a recognition of history. And so I think that is not rooted in the evidence. If you actually look at campaigns and struggles based on whether they used violence or nonviolent means, you'll find that the nonviolent ones are actually more effective precisely because they're waged against powerful 
opponents that have the capacity and willingness to inflict violence. They're usually superior militarily. So groups that are waging struggles against those types of entities, often out of pragmatic choice, because this offers advantages, are having to use these means. And there's a lot of new research that really provides a lot of evidence about the efficacy of nonviolent means compared to violent means. It's so interesting because it really does feel like we always go to violence first, and especially as a nation. So I'm wondering what you think the draw of violent action is. Is it just part of a male ego? Is it that wars make a lot of money? What do you think is the draw of violent action? Yeah, maybe it's all of that, but I don't think it's inevitable, right? Because I think people are drawn also by effectiveness. They use the means which will make it most possible that they're going to win. And so I think part of the problem is that we don't really understand this type of struggle very well. There's too many misconceptions about what it is. We lump it in with all this other phenomenon, pacifism or moral nonviolence, which gets confusing for people. So I don't think we understand well that this actually offers advantages, that it will make it more possible for our communities to both reduce harm, act strategically in ways that can bring us the changes that we seek. So I don't know what the draw is, but I don't buy this kind of belief that it's somehow human nature. I think we have glorified violence historically Through our education system, through our popular media, we talk about the way in which violence has delivered people rights and freedoms. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people think those are the means we also have to use in order to win rights and freedoms. But in fact, that's not how people have achieved the freedoms and the rights that we now have. They've won them through nonviolent struggle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why do you think so few people are talking about and teaching nonviolent action around the world? Or is it just an American thing? No, I think it's a global problem. This idea that we, as societies around the world, we really see violence, the primacy of violence is somehow offering us this like powerful tool. And I guess that's a really big question. I think I focus on my piece of it, which is that is changing. I think what can bring the awareness of these other tools is first of all, understanding where they're being used around the world, bring attention to those struggles and really change the narrative. If we look at our country, for example, and we look at what our country just experienced, United States. Now, if the narrative right now is that institutions worked, that the democratic system sustained itself, 
that it somehow was self-sustaining, that everything went the way it was supposed to, that of course it was going to be okay, or that legislators saved the day, or that the courts saved the day. I'm really worried right now that the narrative emerging from this kind of crisis that the United States just went through is that the system worked. Because I don't think necessarily the system worked. I think it's what people, regular people in our government, legislators, judges, ordinary people, all the civil society groups that organize, how our media stepped forward. It's a variety of things that happened that I think made it so that things went one way or the other. But in fact, we were very vulnerable. Our system remains vulnerable. And it's really important that we figure out how do we kind of bolster the systems that can make this democracy less vulnerable, that can make these systems and these institutions that were undermined, how can we strengthen those? And especially now when information and disinformation can travel so quickly and we're looking at how technology has allowed for organizing such violent resistance and how it's, I would think, easier now than ever before to not only spread the message, but get people in the place at the time that they need to be in order to have these violent moments. And it feels like we're drowning in this here in America. And now feels like the critical time where we have to say to ourselves that we're going to educate and empower people to choose a different way. But also, I want to know what you think that that says about us as a culture. Right now, it feels like we're totally drowning in this place of of violence. It feels like we're very vulnerable as a society. It feels like our institutions are vulnerable. It feels like communities that were already vulnerable are even more so. And the disinformation and the kind of constant violations are not helping that feeling. But in the midst of this sort of vulnerability in this kind of dark future that we're seeing is is something else, which is that it's a time of engagement like perhaps never before. I think what's happened has been polarizing for people. I think it's forced people to take a side. I think that's what movements do. We know that from Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and all the struggles throughout history. All of you have been watching. I've been watching. At this hour, our democracy is under unprecedented assault. Social media networks took center stage this week when they suspended the president's accounts. Twitter and others cited several posts that they say incited the riots. We did our part to secure the integrity of the election. And then, on January 6th, President Trump gave a speech rejecting the results and calling on people to fight. Ordinary people have been forced to pick a side. It's now pretty uncomfortable not to take a side on certain fundamental issues like do we believe that armed people with the capacity and willingness to use violence should overtake a legislative building that is a fundamental part of our democratic system. Ordinary people have to make that choice. And so I think that engagement, that sort of increased recognition and awareness about how our systems are vulnerable and then maybe what our role is as citizens to make them less so is a positive, right? It may be that this crisis we just experienced was a crash course in what it means to be 
a citizen, what it means to be engaged, what it means to recognize that you have a role and responsibility in maintaining a democratic system beyond just voting every four years. I hope that's not my being overly hopeful or optimistic, but I think what it is, is that the danger of this moment is any feeling of inevitability that everything's going to go to shit and there's nothing we can do. I've been feeling this inevitability about not holding people to account about this insurrection. And it just feels like we have an entire, not only part of the country, but also an entire part of the government that doesn't see how very hurtful and dangerous this was. They just seem to be completely playing into the conspiracy theories and QAnon. And I just want to ask you specifically about QAnon, because in preparation for this interview, I was thinking, is there a nonviolent action that we can take against non-governmental groups like QAnon and the violent insurrectionists in America? Like, what would be impactful or effective? I think it's a good question because it's precisely the kind of toolbox we're going to need to draw from. These organizations are not going away. And in fact, they may have been emboldened, you know, obviously by the administration that four years, but also in the weeks since. And I think the idea is to figure out how we mobilize ourselves and how we develop organizations and networks that can really be a buffer to those other types of organizations. I think it may be also that they've had a blow in recent weeks, but what we do know is they're probably regrouping, right? They're probably looking at the past weeks and months and figuring out what they need to do for next time, how they can validate gains. And so I think we need to be doing the same. We need to be looking at ways in which we fail to prepare for those types of violations. Yes. And to really prepare properly. And right now, I think, is a moment of reflection, I think, for a lot of people. It was definitely a wake-up call because I was having a conversation with a congressman yesterday, and he said that with all of the warnings about January 6th, they still underestimated, and Capitol Police still underestimated, the threat. The law enforcement officials responsible for security at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th blame incomplete intelligence for the violent and deadly mob attack. Officials say the lack of intelligence is what led to poor preparations on top of the delay to call in the National Guard. So during a Senate hearing, U.S. or former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund said this. Capitol Police and responding law enforcement agencies showed tremendous restraint by not using their firearms, which would have likely led to a more chaotic situation and a possible mass casualty incident. It's shocking to me, especially in a time where isn't this why people from our government fought for surveillance, like so that they can intercept these threats and these whispers. And it's been so bizarre to watch it unfold in a way where there seemed to be no preparation at all. So I'm hopeful that because of the lack of preparation, that we do figure out like what's in the toolbox and how can we use it to prevent future attacks like this. I don't think it's over. I don't think the violence is over. I think that there will continue to be a violent uprising. And I don't know, 
even as a messenger, as a, an influencer, as someone who has and uses her platform to try to educate and empower, I don't even, I'm at a loss. I am at a loss as to what we have to do. Knowing everything that you know about the country right now and everything that we are facing and how everyone has chosen a side, what do you think is the greatest tool for nonviolent action that we have in this country and also globally? Or do you think it is specific to the territory and what they're fighting against or for? I would love to see an analysis um, of what gives these types of systems power, what gives these communities power and these networks, what has allowed them to flourish the way that they have. And Right now, I don't know that we understand that well. I'm sure there are specialists in disinformation campaigns and the emergence of these types of groups and QAnon. There's versions of QAnon all over the world, and they do very well in this kind of ecosystem where there's the disinformation and severe kind of lack of trust in government systems and where there's a sort of populist leader that is pointing at sometimes immigrants or outsiders or whoever in society as being the root of economic problems. And clearly, the economic insecurities play a role in that. So this is a kind of formula that is being used globally. And I think that so also can the response to it. And so what do we do? That's a very big question. And I think it's going to require all of us. But it may be that the sort of normal tools of law enforcement are not necessarily the only tools at our disposal, and they may not be the most effective ones. And by that, I mean, you know, it's really a battle of information and narratives. And it's a very convenient and effective one that they're using. And depriving that of oxygen seems extremely important, which we've seen as some of the major players in this disinformation campaigns have been deplatformed by media and tech companies that I think are finally understanding that they have a role and responsibility in disseminating information that's so incredibly harmful to society and that that doesn't fit within the framework of free speech. Why is our email, why are our texts, why are our snaps, why is everything filled with such garbage? There's just so much out there right now. I don't even think most people realize how much their brain has to handle. 400 hours of video uploaded to YouTube per minute, 500 million tweets sent per day. There's over 3 billion Snapchats sent per day. That's where all that hyperbolic news comes from. But why is it that all these things that start out good so quickly become bad and even flirt with evil. You look at some of the fake news on these platforms, it's being created by people who are taking advantage of the fact that they've been given that access. So I think things like that are really important. Maybe we're slowly coming around. How do you kind of deny the oxygen and deny the platforms? But then also, what's the alternative? And also to add on to that is how much our adversaries are using the disinformation to make us weaker, which is a whole other part of it, which I think is something that for sure has happened. But I agree it needs to be studied. I interviewed Christian Picciolini. He's an ex-neo-Nazi basically. And so in his opinion, it is that people are looking for identity, community, and purpose. And that's why these groups like QAnon or any white supremacist group 
Or ISIS, for that matter. Yes, exactly. Or Scientology or any of these that are preying on people's vulnerabilities for their own power. It's very complicated. It's very complicated. You mentioned general strikes before. I've been an activist for 30 years and very involved in the activist and organizing communities. And it's something that maybe every so often someone will throw out there. Well, what about a general strike? And then part of me feels like it almost wouldn't work in this country in a modern industrialized society because the response to that, especially for those of us who have empathy and compassion and are aware, is that a general strike would hurt the most vulnerable among us, the, the people that live on so little a day that if we were to strike, it would harm those people the most. What are your thoughts on if a general strike could work in a modern society? I think it's a valid concern that when we throw out these tools and we consider using them, especially something so extreme as a general strike, I think we have to understand better what a general strike is and in what circumstances it should be used and how it works and how you actually do it effectively. Because calling for a general strike, you better understand whether people are going to really follow that and what preparations have you made and in what ways are vulnerable people going to be taken care of. And I think some of the best strikes throughout history are ones where groups calling for the strike have done a lot of preparation and advanced planning and doesn't seek to make vulnerable people more vulnerable. And I think, again, it is an extreme type of action. Now, there is a variety of other strikes at our disposal, ones that are going to focus on specific industries, one that are for shorter periods of time, either that they work with established labor unions or ones that are like wildcat strikes that are by like the NBA players, for example. On behalf of ourselves and our team, we're going to place a statement as a team today. NBA players are sending a message after a national outcry. It all started after the Milwaukee Bucks announced they would be sitting out their scheduled playoff game Wednesday night. We are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort, and hold each other accountable. We hold ourselves to that standard, and in this moment, we are demanding the same from lawmakers and law enforcement. It helps to look at the sort of repertoire and see which of those it might be better to start with and maybe build to a general strike. And so I'm not sure under sort of what circumstances it would be used in the U.S. and for what purpose and who might call for that. I mean, we saw this after the Women's March. I think there was a call for a general strike immediately following. Yeah. And I think there was talk about it around the impeachment, the first impeachment, basically against the Trump regime and how if we shut down the economy, since it is literally the only thing that seemed to impact him or pierce his armor, that that would be the only thing that that would really make him see exactly where we were and how we were feeling as a nation. I don't remember if after the Women's March that there was a call for it, but probably it felt like such a huge violation that he was even elected and the circumstances around it that I wouldn't doubt that there were murmurs of a general strike. I think your question, though, your basic question is a really good one, is that when we're calling for these types of actions to understand what's the impact of the actions and how do they actually fit into a strategy, a strategy that really looks at what are our objectives. Often we're acting because we're drawing from a set of tools and we're like, this looks interesting to do today. We're going to demonstrate 
in front of building X, or we're going to use this tool or this boycott. And I think this is where an analysis is really important, an understanding of our society. Where are the leverages that we hold that can actually shift things? And so there's some actions that are nonviolent, but just because they're nonviolent doesn't mean we should be using them, just doesn't mean that they're necessarily the most useful for context. So that really matters, that sort of analytical piece. Tell us about the Albert Einstein Institution. What do you do there and how can my listeners support your work? So the Einstein Institution is now in its 38th year and it was founded by Gene Sharp, who I earlier mentioned, who is a father of this field of strategic nonviolent action. Back in the early 80s, I mean, he's been doing this work or, or he passed away, but he started the work in the 1950s and he was really looking at how could we collect this knowledge and share it in terms of looking at the historical cases, doing research on what works and what doesn't work, and then figuring out how those lessons could really connect with activists, organizers, and people around the world who were looking for tools and who were in these global struggles being so incredibly brave and creative, but who didn't usually have access to tools that could help them to plan and to use strategy. And so he started this organization to do that, to do research around nonviolent resistance, to collect these best practices, and then figure out how to share them. So those are our two basic sort of mission areas, sort of collecting knowledge about historically what worked and what hasn't worked and looking at the contemporary cases and drawing insight that then is shared through workshops and trainings and also through publications and translations and other kind of resources that we make available. So that's really our work historically is like collecting the knowledge and then sharing it. And that's what we do today. Incredibly important work. And you were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, which is just amazing. What was that experience like for you? It's, of course, a huge honor, and it's something that's nice to hear, but it's very much disconnected from our ordinary work. I mean, we work with people that do this incredible work, that take great risk, that really deserve all the honors. And it was just a piece of information. It was really nice to have that affirmation, you know, in terms of the nomination, in terms of the group that made the nomination. But yeah. <laughs> I've got to think, it's got to feel almost like, validation that you are on the right path and you're doing the right thing and that the intention in your heart is translating and being understood by people. And that's got to be pretty, like, I just got goosebumps saying that out loud. So I think the exciting part is that there's like growing recognition for this field, that this merits attention. It merits resources. That it's not just like an offshoot of something else, but there's this really powerful phenomenon that offers so much hope to the world, but that we haven't done a good job studying, understanding, and supporting to the detriment of people around the world. And so I think any recognition for this work, for our organization, is really, I think, a recognition that there's just growing awareness about 
what this field offers. So that part is really exciting. And then knowing that people under horrible circumstances all over the world are like struggling to access this knowledge. I mean, there's people serving jail sentences for carrying copies of our books, like heavy jail sentences of six and seven years, because access to these resources is terrifying for repressive forces who understand that actually collective action by people who are actually organized, who are thinking carefully, who are acting not just courageously, but in accordance with strategy, that's terrifying for elite power holders who would rather this information is not available. It comes at a cost to people. And so I think the more awareness we have about the work, the more protections for those people. You give me hope. And I want to know what gives you hope. I wouldn't dare not be hopeful looking out at this world and the fact that there's so much to draw from in terms of, again, the risk people are taking and the refusal and the defiance against oppressive forces. And so how could I not be hopeful? And I actually heard a few years ago, I don't know if you know the activist Daniel Ellsberg. The hundreds of thousands we were killing was unjustified homicide. And I couldn't see the difference between that and murder. Murder had to be stopped. This weekend, portions of a highly classified Pentagon document came to light for all the world to see, brought cries of outrage from Washington. We gotta get this son of a bitch. He released the Pentagon Papers in the 1960s in the, in the Vietnam War. And someone asked him the same question. And he said, well, I'll answer it like this, that like people ask him, how did his marriage, I mean, how was it sustained over the course of like six decades? And he said, well, me and my wife, well, neither of us wanted a divorce at the same time. And he said, that's what activism is like. As long as we don't all give up at the same time we're good. And so I think it's incredibly hopeful that even on days where we feel really beat down, that we can turn to our neighbors and turn to our fellow citizens and to people around the world and know that people are not giving up. And Mm -hmm. so in spite of everything, if people are continuing to fight, then we need to do the same. We need to do our part. Thank you so much. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Gandhi, Dr. King, dramatized and defined the technique of nonviolence, and yet he also said that the only alternative to fear is violence, and that if that were the alternative, he would have to choose violence. Do you subscribe to that judgment of Gandhi, or would you disavow violence under any condition? Well, I think I would have to somewhat interpret Gandhi at this point. I don't think he was setting forth violence as, a, as an alternative. I think he was emphasizing, uh, or, or rather trying to refute an all too prevalent fallacy. And that is that the persons who use uh, the method of nonviolence are actually the weak persons, persons who don't have the weapons of violence, persons who are afraid. But I think that is what Gandhi was attempting to refute. Now, in that in. I would agree with Gandhi that if the only alternative to violence, uh, to fear, uh, is violence and vice versa, then I would say fight. But it isn't the only alternative. We are surrounded by violence. It has stained every thread in the American fabric. It's creating generations of trauma, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle. We need to break that cycle. 
On January 6th, we saw just how damaging violent action for change can be. We also saw just how ineffective it is. Joe Biden is president. Donald Trump was impeached and relegated to a shameful part of our history. Violent action did not work. It must never be allowed to work. Nonviolence and peace are not the same thing. Nonviolent action is action. It's not passive. It requires courage and dedication and perseverance and being very, very smart and even more strategic. It is an act of destruction, but not an act of bloodletting. It is the path we need to take to tear down the systems of oppression that are so very evident in America today and build something better and more equitable for all of us. We need to be effective, and nonviolent resistance is the way to get there. Thank you. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 